Welcome to February at Royals, Rebels, and Romantics. Here in the U.S., February is all about Valentine's Day. So I thought it would be fun to take a look at some romantics with a few Royals and Rebels thrown in for fun. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to another episode of Royals, Rebels, and Romantics, where we're looking at some royal romances. I have to apologize. I've had a really scratchy throat. So I will be taking a few extra sips of water. Today we're going to be, you might have guessed by my background, looking at the marriage of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. It's quite famous. There are a lot of different theories about the relationship itself and how great it was. Was it really quite as magical as Victoria described it early on? Or was there a little bit of manipulation maybe going on? So we're going to look at that marriage and also consider how they started not only this idea of a family on the throne, which was very positive, very well received by people, but as they began to strategically marry their children and then grandchildren all over Europe, how they tried to establish a family dynasty in an effort to prevent future wars, maybe have actually led to some. So let's take a look at this. I'm going to go ahead and let's go. So Victoria and Albert, the family dynasty. So let's take a look at how this dynasty gets started. Little Princess Victoria was born as part of a rush to find an heir to the throne. So the heir to the throne, the only child of King George IV, was Princess Charlotte. She was Princess of Wales. She was married. And unfortunately, in 1817, she died in childbirth. And since she was the only daughter, the only child of George IV, and none of the king's brothers had any legitimate children. They had plenty of illegitimate children, but no legitimate children. So suddenly there's a huge void and a huge void in the succession. Who's next? So there's a rush among all those brothers to set aside mistresses, marry somebody, and have legitimate children. So the one of the younger brothers, Edward, Duke of Kent, married Princess Victoire, shown here, of Saxe-Coburg-Salfeld, and they had a daughter who was christened Alexandrina Victoria, and she was born in May 1819. They hurried back to England from where they'd been living on the continent so she could be born in England and therefore have a really good chance of being an heir to the throne. Now, the the Duke died, so there would be no more children in that family, and some of the other young children passed away. And so unfortunately for the others, but fortunately for Princess Victoria, when William IV took the throne in 1830, she was the heir presumptive. That term means that she's considered the heir, but if someone with a greater claim comes along, and quite frankly, that means a boy, then she would be displaced. Well, no boy came along. And so when William IV died, having eked out his life until she was 18 years old, he was determined. He did not get along with Duchess Victoire or Sir John Conroy with whom the Duchess had established a strong relationship. And he did not want them to be the regents for young Victoria. So he somehow remained alive. She turned 18 
on in May of 1837. And less than a month later, King William IV died and she became Queen Victoria. Now, Victoria keeps a number of diaries throughout her life. And when she writes about what happens when she becomes queen, the word we see the most often is the word alone. While under the Kensington system, something developed by her mother and Sir John Conroy to sort of keep her under wraps, she's never alone. She doesn't eat alone. She's not allowed to sleep alone. She can't even walk down the stairs alone. So you see her exulting in being alone. She meets with her minister, she says, quite alone. So she's very excited about this. She becomes quite friendly with the prime minister, Lord Melbourne, who with the Whig government is in charge, and he helps her plan this grand coronation. So she is crowned on the 28th of June, 1838 in Westminster Abbey. And she becomes the first monarch. She moves into Buckingham Palace and she decides to live there. That's her main headquarters. It becomes the headquarters of the royal family. She is the first royal to use Buckingham Palace as a main headquarters. Now, initially, she wants to remain single. She's not in a rush to get married. But that means her mother is her chaperone. So she doesn't get to be alone quite as much as she had hoped. One of the things that Lord Melbourne, or Lord M, as she does sometimes refer to him, he said, it is possible, you know, to get rid of your chaperone if you get married. So a couple of years into the reign, she decides maybe it would be a good idea to get married. And one of the people who has been put forth as a likely spouse is Prince Albert. Now, we see, it's very interesting because we see Victoria as a single woman coming to the throne. We've had some other single women, Mary Tudor and Elizabeth Tudor, come to the throne as single women. And there is no shortage of men telling them whom to marry. And the same is true of Victoria. Victoria decides to take the advice. And so when Albert visits for the second time, he's visited before. She sort of liked him. But the second time, apparently all the bells and whistles go off and they are enamored of each other. And within five days of his visit, uh, he gets there and five days later, she proposes to him. Of course, as queen, it's her position to do so. They agree to be married. And so here we go. She has chosen Albert. She has gone along with him. Actually, the choice is given to her, but she goes along with it. She proposes to him and they are married on the 10th of February, 1840. Of course, that's great for us in February, as we celebrate all of these marriages, that it's their wedding month. You see here, Victoria, in a white wedding dress. This was not all that popular at the time. In fact, as queen, she was really supposed to be possibly wearing robes of state or something a little more elaborate. But she wore white because she felt like that was the best way to show off this marvelous lace that she wanted to wear with her wedding dress. And also because she didn't want to show up Albert. It was very important to her. And you see this throughout their time together that she sometimes pulls herself back a little bit. So he will have a chance to shine. Now, again, she kept a diary and boy, the idea of being alone goes out the window once Albert's around. Here's how she describes her wedding night. Brace yourself. I never, never 
all caps, spent such an evening, my dearest, dearest, dear Albert, all caps. His excessive love and affection gave me feeling of heavenly love and happiness I could never have hoped to have felt before. He clasped me in his arms and we kissed each other again and again. His beauty, his sweetness and gentleness. Oh, how can I ever be thankful enough to have such a husband? To be called by these names of tenderness I have never yet heard used to me before. Oh, bliss beyond belief the happiest day of my life. So straight away, we do get a sense that physically, this was a very compatible relationship and they do seem very drawn and devoted to each other. There's a lot of celebration and a lot of excitement about the wedding. And in addition, Albert begins to emerge as the primary advisor to Queen Victoria. It had been Lord Lord Melbourne but not anymore. Now it was Albert who was trying to take more and more of the role of governing onto himself. Initially, Victoria was resistant to that, but it turns out all those exciting evenings led to quite a few babies quite quickly. Victoria becomes pregnant quickly, and during her first pregnancy, there's an assassination attempt. Shots are fired at her. It is very frightening. She comes through it fine, not injured or hurt at all, but her popularity again soars. So after a few missteps early on, she is making choices and having experiences that are make her more and more and more popular. And the idea of this family on the throne is very appealing to the middle class. So the children keep coming and coming. And one of the things that's kind of interesting, some of you have seen the PBS production of Victoria, and they were interviewing the producers of the show. And they said, you know, we know the years that these children were born. And in your program, she's not having as many children as quickly as we know she did in her life. Why is that? And the producer said, well, we thought it might be a bit tedious for the viewers to have her pregnant over and over again. Now, I would just like to say, if it's tedious for the viewers, think how tedious it must have been for Victoria herself. She didn't like being pregnant, and she actually didn't like babies very much. And yet, she had a house full of children. That enabled her and Albert, and you can see the staging of this very well-known and beautiful painting here. She is showing her nation that there is a stable, happy family on the throne. After quite a few years of scandal during the time of the Prince Regent and George IV and William IV on the throne, we now have a very happy family, the pinnacle of morality, and the reestablishment of a popular monarchy. Again, things are becoming more and more popular. And over 17 years, Victoria has nine children. This is quite extraordinary. For one thing, she's tiny. She's very short. She's very small. And to go through nine pregnancies so quickly was very hard on her. And it's sort of amazing in a time where, you know, most parents don't come through nine pregnancies and not lose any of their children. It really was quite extraordinary. Little fun fact, during her pregnancies, uh, for her eighth child, 
she decided to try chloroform to reduce the pain and she liked it. So she used it again for her ninth and final pregnancy. Despite the clergy objecting, they felt like it was against biblical teaching. And her doctors, some of them objected and thought it might be too dangerous. But she felt like it was a good idea, which sort of gave women at the time an, an opportunity to you know, follow the queen's lead there. Anyway, as the children kept coming, Albert was able to play a greater and greater role in the governing of the country because Victoria was so often away. She was sick. She was with the children. She was struggling through pregnancy and she did have a very hard time postpartum. Um, We might, you know, you hate to diagnose things without being there and sort of retroactively, but she did struggle after the birth of so many children of such a short period of time. And Albert's letters to her during some of these times when he describes her childishness and her tantrums, he's not always very kind to her. And so that's why we look at the marriage and it may not be quite the glorious thing that it's described in some of her journal entries. They were a partnership. She relied on him heavily, but there were times he seemed to somewhat take advantage of that and follow his own policies as well. One of which was he was appalled by the Napoleonic Wars. And so the two of them decided that they would marry all of these children. They would use them to establish a great family dynasty throughout Europe and beyond so that their family could promote their family values and prevent another world-type war like we'd seen with Napoleon. It didn't quite work that way, but that was the plan. So all of these children began to be married off as they got old enough into households and into royal households throughout Europe. Now, the other thing we see happening as more and more children are coming is Albert arranges and facilitates a sort of a reunion, a reestablishment of a relationship, a healing of a relationship between Victoria and her mother. And so Victoria's mother, the children's grandmother, re-enters the family circle, which is a good thing, and becomes a real stalwart, a real help for Victoria. And we see the two of them become very, very close. Albert uses this to eliminate Leitzen, who is Victoria's governess. Albert felt like she had too much um, influence over Victoria, so he wanted her out. So he brings in Victoria's mother, and you really can see him sort of managing the family and managing the country and with these ambitions of managing the world beyond. Well, as we come into March 1861, Victoria's mother dies. And the two of them have become very close. Victoria is devastated by her mother's death. And she's also upset because her eldest son, so her daughter, Vicky, both she and especially Albert are very, very fond of their eldest daughter, Vicky, who seems quite capable of ruling the country. But of course, she can't be the heir because she's a woman. So the next child, um, Bertie, he becomes King Edward, but his nickname in the family is Bertie. He is not preparing himself to be the king. He is not living this family-oriented lifestyle. He's stepping out and has most recently been caught sleeping with an actress of all people. Scandal, scandal, scandal. 
So during this year, 1861, Albert goes to visit him to confront him about his behavior and tell him to shape up. And it's while there that Albert becomes unwell. He comes home. He's very unwell. And he dies in December of 1861. And of course, Victoria, who's also lost her mother that same year, is just devastated. And she blames Bertie. It's a cause of estrangement between them for a number of years. And she spends the next 40 years as a single woman ruling again, just as she had started. So most of her reign, the majority of her reign is spent as a single woman. But because she is in such deep mourning, she becomes sort of a non-participatory, known as the, quote, widow of Windsor. And there's resentment. She's sort of invisible to people. They can't see her doing much of anything. And since she seems to be so distant or so invisible, the Republican spirit begins to grow again. And in 1871, so, you know, 10 years after Albert's died and practically no one's seen her, Bertie catches typhoid fever. And this just sort of shocks Victoria into a reconciliation with her son because, you know, she's afraid she'll lose him too. He gets through it. And so she attends this Thanksgiving service with her son. She kind of steps back tentatively onto the public stage. She goes to St. Paul's with him. And during that sort of week of celebrations for his recovery, there's another attempt to assassinate her. And again, she comes through it, but she realizes that she maybe needs to be a little more involved. And the people realize that she does matter to them. After all, that assassination attempt again stirs her popularity and she becomes more popular over time. So she is surrounded by her children and now they're married and having children. She's continuing to arrange marriages, not only for her children, but for her grandchildren. And everyone looks to her to get her guidance and they go along with it. You see her really crafting and carrying out Albert's plan for this huge network. So time goes along and the family continues to grow. And in 1887, when this portrait is painted and you can see her there, she's still in mourning, but she is surrounded by her family. She is certainly not alone. And in 1887, she celebrates her golden jubilee. Now, King George III had had a golden jubilee, but he was so ill, people weren't even sure he would live to celebrate it. Well, here's Queen Victoria celebrating her golden jubilee, participating again, being seen more and more. And 10 years later in 1897, there's the Diamond Jubilee. So again, she is seen more and more. She is persuaded for these jubilees to wear a crown. One of her prime ministers said that the symbol of government is a crown, not a widow's knot. And so you may have seen that very small diamond crown. She has to sit atop her widow's knot, but she is more and more out in the public and her popularity is getting greater and greater. And so I thought it would be a good time to look at some of her children and how we see the children um, moving forward and where they ended up. So let's look at her children. Her oldest child, Princess Victoria Adelaide Mary Louise. This was Albert's favorite child. 
She marries Frederick Wilhelm of Prussia, and he became the emperor of Germany. And their son is Kaiser Wilhelm. So quite famous. All right. Then here is Prince Albert Edward, and he's a little less confident than his elder sister, seems a little, again, less capable. Um, He succeeds as Edward VII, and he is, through his line, (coughs) Queen Elizabeth, Her Majesty, Queen Elizabeth II, is Victoria's great-great-granddaughter. So through his line, we have the continuation of the royal family. Now, this is Princess Alice Maud Mary, who was reported to have gotten along well with all of her siblings. Not all of them get along, but she gets along with everybody. She marries Prince Ludwig of Hesse, and their daughter, who is Alexandra or Alex, marries um, Nicholas II, the Tsar of Russia. So we know that story ends very sadly. Now, this is Prince Alfred Ernest Albert, who's known as Alfie, and he's the most mischievous of the royal children. He also marries into the Russian royal bloodline through his marriage to the Grand Duchess Marie. And so Victoria was a little hesitant about these marriages into Russia, but went ahead with them because she knew that was necessary, you know, according to Albert's grand plan. Now, this is Princess Helena Augusta Victoria. And she's uh, the tomboy of the daughters of the family who wasn't interested in cooking or sewing and would rather be playing war games with her brothers. She married Prince Frederick Christian and one of Princess Eugenie's middle names is Helena. And that's from this Princess Helena. This is Princess Louise Caroline Alberta. And, um, She was reportedly very strong-willed, and she decided to marry a commoner. This was unknown and certainly not part of her parents' family plan. So she married John Douglas Sutherland Campbell. Her mother did approve and support her in it, but it was quite surprising for the family. And Alberta, Canada is named for her. This is Prince Arthur William Patrick, who is reported to be the queen's favorite son. He marries Princess Louise Margaret of Prussia and becomes later the governor general of Canada. Now, this is Prince Leopold George Duncan, and he was adventurous and fearless. But sadly, hemophilia caused his early death. Um, He was only married to Princess Helena for a couple of years. And while he was at Oxford, it said that he was friends with Lewis Carroll and Oscar Wilde. And finally, Princess Beatrice Mary Victoria, she was the baby of the family. And when Prince Albert died, it said that Queen Victoria was so devastated, she went and got Princess Beatrice, who was about four years old, and took her to bed with her and just wanted her daughter to be with her all the time. It was very hard for Victoria when Beatrice decided to get married. She was the youngest. Victoria sort of thought she'd just stay with her forever, but she married Prince Henry of Battenberg and unfortunately was also a carrier for hemophilia and passed it to her daughter, who then passed it into the Spanish royal family. So sadly, we see hemophilia passing into different families through this grand plan of Victoria and Albert. So 
there were 20 grandsons and 22 granddaughters with all of these children and 87 great-grandchildren. So it really was a pretty amazing family. So we're coming to the end of Queen Victoria's life. She she wrote out specific instructions for her funeral. She wanted it done in a particular way. She wanted things to be just right. Um, she spent the Christmas of 1900. And you know, those years when you pass from the 1899 to 1900 and the queen is in her waning years, certainly there was a lot of questions. Everybody knew who the heir was, but she did survive um, through that Christmas and into 1901 and died in January of 1901, just made it into the new century, was widely mourned, as you see. And so just a quick look at the legacies. She was un, uh, uh, sort of unprepossessing as a physical figure. She was short and quite stout. And yet she projected this grand royal image through herself, through her family. She brought to life that family on the throne image and really rescued the reputation of the monarchy she kept very detailed diaries. Now we know, I'm going to go ahead and stop sharing, come back and chat with you. We know that Beatrice edited these diaries. And so there's probably some things we don't know, but we do have a sense of her voice through these diaries. She oversaw the gradual, and I'm not sure how happy she was about it, but the establishment of the constitutional monarchy. And she really is just really put into practice that happy family, the happy family on the throne, and ultimately was nicknamed the grandmother of Europe. And when people referred to during her lifetime all over the world, when people talked about the queen, it was quite clear they were referring to Queen Victoria. So thank you for joining me through this look at Queen Victoria and the plan she and Albert had to establish a family dynasty through Europe and beyond. As we know, when we look to World War I, it didn't work out the way they wanted, but they did do their best to promote the notion of family and to reestablish the positive reputation of the monarchy to sustain the monarchy during a time when republicanism was definitely sweeping the world. So they did work hard, work together for a period of time. But I also think it's important to remember that Victoria spent most of her reign, although she's always associated with Albert and she did define herself as that widow, she spent most of her reign as a single woman ruling on her own. So thank you so much for joining me. And I'm really excited to keep up, to keep shaking up history with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. I'd also love it if you'd subscribe, leave a rating, and maybe even consider joining the Royals, Rebels, and Romantics patron family. A big shout out of appreciation to all the patrons who make our show possible. I'm so excited for all of us to keep shaking up history together.